Welcome back to the Happily Human Podcast. I'm Annie. And I'm Jess. And today we're going to be talking about our inner children. (laughs) My favorite. I know. It's really an overwhelming uh, conversation when we talk about our inner kids. Yeah. And I also would like to say that Annie opened this podcast up with looking at me and saying, I can't wait to make you cry. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, it's one of my my few joys in life. It is. Is to attack you emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I mean that with love. I know you do. Yeah, it's my love language. And we had to take a little two-week hiatus because of sickness. So it's (laughs) been a while. It has. So why not have a good cry um, today together? Okay. Let's do this. So I want to talk about inner child um, mostly because inner child healing has been such a big part of my recent Mm -hmm. time. And I know we've talked about this a lot um, because there's just, you know, I think when you turn like mid-30s, early 40s, you just kind of take a look back at your life because it's kind of like your halfway point, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're like, all right, what I do right and what was wrong? Mm -hmm. And it just kind of makes you take into consideration all the parts of your life. But um, the first question I want to ask you about your inner child is if you visualize, and you guys, if you're listening, if you're driving a car, don't close your eyes. But if you're like (laughs) in a safe place, I want you to do the same exercise. If you have to pause, pause and think about it. But when you picture your inner child, at what age do you see you? So I was like instantly able to answer that question when you asked it. And I am age eight. And I've been thinking about this a little bit um, as well, working on inner child stuff. And I don't know why it's age eight. Mm. I can't think of anything significant that happened at age eight. Um, A lot of things happened to me in my childhood, but in having other people prompt me and talk to me about my inner child, it is age eight. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Age eight. And you don't know what was going on at that time for Mm you. You just know Mm -hmm. something about that age was important. Yes. I wonder if there's like a repressed memory there. I mean, I think there's a lot of repressed memories and it's weird that you asked me this today because for some reason this morning I woke up and I just started having an inner dialogue in my head while making my coffee and everything of telling my childhood story to someone. Oh, it's like a premonition. Yeah. And um, I was literally just telling my childhood story in my head to a person. Um, But age eight is, yeah. And, you know, a lot of things that you see on social media about inner child healing is talking to your child Mm -hmm. or, and comforting them. And, I have um, a scenario where I'm in my childhood bedroom and I'm looking at eight-year-old Jess and it makes me cry and I'm hugging her and telling her that it's okay. Um, But I just don't know why. Why she's so upset. And why age eight. I think think I'm also very much of I need to know why Mm -hmm. um, sort of thing. So I have thought about like repressed memories and – but again, so much happened in your childhood. You don't remember ages and yeah. Um, but yeah, I just it's weird. And I wonder I, what she was doing. Honestly, I just think that it was a time um, where I think I was finally at an age where I was maybe able to start realizing. Obviously, not at age eight, but the emotional and mental abuse that was going on. Yeah. 
I mean, you're eight, so you're not laying in bed reading, you know, Ramona Beesby books and being like, I'm being emotionally abused. I mean, maybe you are. I mean, maybe, but <laughs> Ramona wasn't. Right. Um, but I think it was around that timeline that I started telling myself internally, you will be okay. You will get through this. So, yeah, that's heavy, not to interrupt. But I feel like that's really heavy because it makes me think like, okay, what was this eight-year-old's life circumstance like what was she doing she was in school what was happening at school what was happening at home what what was her day-to-day like I feel like that's where you find a lot of your answers Mm -hmm. and I mean I could answer those questions I'm choosing not to because I don't want to out anybody in my family sort of thing um but again I think it was at that time that I realized that the way I was being being treated was not appropriate, mm-hmm. but instead of, well, I mean, again, you're eight, so you don't know how to deal with this, but that is, I do have memories of laying in my bed and telling myself, you'll be okay. You will be okay. Yeah. And so can I ask a really hard question? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. I want to keep talking about you because that's my coping mechanism, but I will share. Yeah. I will also share about my inner child in a little bit, but before I do, let's just, you know how I feel about putting my claws in just a little deeper (laughs) when you're thinking, which this is a really great exercise. If you're someone who's never heard of the term of inner child healing and you're like, I don't even know what that is. Um, what I usually tell people do is if you can think back on your life, and you pick yourself as a kid, what age are they? That's the first question. Mm-hmm. The second thing I tell you to do is write yourself a letter mm-hmm. at that age. Like tell that age of you, whatever that age of you needed to hear at the time that you're remembering and then go from there. But another great exercise mm-hmm. is you talk about kind of like a guided, self-guided meditation mm-hmm. in the sense that you are walking yourself through the experience of being in the room with your past self and um, working through some of those memories and emotions and feelings, what would you say or what are you saying to that version of yourself that you feel like that version of yourself needed to hear? Um, so I have done this exercise. Annie actually um, encouraged me to do it. I did write a letter to myself. And um, basically it was me apologizing to eight-year-old Jess for not standing up for her. Um, But then it was more of me telling her how proud she should be of herself for what she went through and um, all that she's overcome. Um, And that was really hard. Um, It was still really hard sometimes. And when you talk about my narrative this morning, um, one of my coping mechanisms as a child was to... I don't know why I would lay in bed at night and I would think of all worst case scenarios of my future. And I would tell myself, if this happens, you will be okay. You will survive. You just need to make it to X, Y, and Z. And I remember like it would just physically hurt to think about something happening. And so I have this tendency to do that and it's not like today's conversation in my head wasn't a positive conversation it was like let me just tell you everything bad that happened to me in my childhood and 
I don't know. I'm trying to get away from looking at the talking about the negative. I mean, it has to be talked about, but also I want to get to where I can say, okay, this happened when you were eight, but look how you survived it. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I try to, I have a tendency to just go down this rabbit hole of everything that bad that's happened to me and wallow and feel self-pity. And that kind of started this morning. And then I was sitting outside and I was just enjoying this beautifully cold day, (laughs) which if I hate the cold and I was in the, I was, had reached age 13 in my head. And then I just stopped and I said, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why am I replaying the negative parts of my childhood? Stop. Right. And I did. Yeah. Because it wasn't bringing me joy or anything. It was just like, oh, yeah. And then this happened. And then this happened. Um, so the letter, what I would say to myself, you made it. And you did it. And you have overcome so much. And so much of things that you never thought you would overcome. For example, um, my mother was in the travel industry. And as a child, one of the things that I would often lay in bed thinking about was if I lost her, who I would be left with. And how difficult that would be. And I thought, never in a million years would I be able to survive the loss of my mother. Mm-hmm. And then later on in life, I lost her. And it was very unexpectedly. And I didn't think I would make it through it. But I did. And that's what I tell myself when I look at eight-year-old Jess. Is the worst thing that you thought of when you were eight, you were able to survive. You will be okay. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I have to tell her is, you know, you will be okay. You are okay. I am okay. I'm getting there. And, um, I remember, um, when I was in my twenties and my mom turned like 40 and we talked about the forties and later on, and she said, it's the best time of your life. And I said, why? And she goes, because you stopped giving a shit. I love that. And I was like. What are you talking about? I'm 45, and I've stopped giving a shit. I just want to applaud. (laughs) (laughs) I want to applaud and happily, joyfully dance for you. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, you said about your late 30s and your early 40s. I mean, it is so true, and you just start to really realize that you have to take care of you. I think that society makes us think that we have to do X, Y, and Z in our 20s and raise families in our 30s and completely neglect who you are. Who I was at 20 mm-hmm. is not anything who I am right now. Girl, I'm not talking to 20-year-old me because she'd be <laughs> posting stuff on Facebook that I did not agree to. <laughs> yeah, Facebook has a tendency to remind you of uh, Facebook likes to, hu- to yeah. humble me yeah. very quickly with some of these things I was writing on people's walls when that was a thing. Yeah. And it's weird because now that I am 45 and I am around a bunch of 20-year-olds, I just want to encourage them so much. I'm like, go to therapy. Do inner child healing. You do you. And I mean it like literally. like Figure it out. Figure it out now yeah. because your life will be so much happier mm-hmm. in your 30s. Mm-hmm. But, of course, all the 20-year-olds are like, I don't need that. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. so good. Yeah. I'm like, okay, you just wait. You're so cute. You just wait. I agree. It sounds to me when you're talking, I have so many things to respond to. Okay. Um, 
first, it sounds to me like when you're talking, what I hear from you is acceptance. Mm -hmm. I hear a deep, a deep feeling of acceptance and almost maybe not quite yet, but getting there. (laughs) Peace. Yeah. Peace with the thoughts of like, okay, you know, this was my life and that doesn't have to be what I carry with me into the future. And I really can just acknowledge that it existed Mm -hmm. and be in a state of acceptance with it. Like, okay, yes, that was my childhood. And that's all I really need to say about it. Instead of allowing yourself, like we talked about last time, um, allowing yourself to go through your narrative of, gosh, I had a horrible childhood and people were like this. And then this bad thing happened and that bad thing happened. Um, and instead of wearing your story as a badge of honor, mm-hmm. because that's what you're doing. And I did, I did the same thing. Um, all, because when I think when you have a traumatic childhood, that becomes who you are for a long time because you don't have an identity. You're learn you're trying to find your identity throughout your teenage and young adulthood. And when you have a traumatic childhood, you're kind of labeled as like something from your childhood and you like carry it on. Like for me, I was the girl with a dead brother. So like that was my badge of honor that I had a dead brother. And it sounds wild to say it like that because it's not something to brag about. And it's not that I was bragging about it, but it it was that if I presented it first, it didn't hurt as much. Whereas if somebody presented it to me, it was more painful. And the same thing with being overweight. If I got to bring up being overweight first, Mm -hmm. it couldn't hurt me the way it would if someone else brought up that I was overweight and so on and so forth about all sorts of things from the past. But the other thing I wanted to talk about that you mentioned that I used to do the exact same way was talk about every worst case scenario. And I used to think like um, that I just had an anxiety disorder and that was my problem. And yes, I do think it is attributed to anxiety. But the reason it developed so strongly in me for so long was because my worst case scenario was happening. (laughs) Like it was happening. You know, I was 12 years old when my brother died of brain cancer and he was 10. And if you've ever watched someone die in general, whether it's through illness or like just die in front of you, it is quite the experience and it can be very damaging (laughs) as it should be. You know, it's, it was a large loss. And so I would go through, you know, scenarios of loss with other family members, other friends. Like, I'd be like, what if they're dead? Okay, if they die, then this is what I'm going to do. And if this person is gone, then this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, And I would do it so much because it felt comfortable for me mm-hmm. in a weird way to imagine these worst case scenarios because then I could never be surprised and taken off guard by the pain the way I was the day my brother died. It was almost like (laughs) pre-pain. And the truth is, obviously, that's detrimental because none of the things really that I thought of came true, at least not most of them did not because I was like an extremist in my thoughts. You know, I'm like, what if the house burns down and the dogs die? Or what if my mom doesn't come home from work because she was in a tornado? Like, things like that. Um... But it's one of those things where I would like pre-feel the pain. So I was always just hurting a little bit so that I couldn't be just smacked down from happiness. Mm -hmm. Because that was the feeling I had. Like I remember when my brother got diagnosed like two days before. Okay, try not to giggle. I'm not. Okay, but if you do, it's okay. Okay. Like two days before, I had gone to my very first concert ever. It was a Hanson concert. I was oom-bopping it up at Starwood (laughs) Amphitheater in Nashville. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I told you not to giggle. Um, And I was just oom-bopping it up and hanging out. And then two days later, my parents are pulling me upstairs to sit on their floral futon 
to be like, your brother has a massive tumor in his head. And I, my first question was, is he going to die? And they said, yes. And I said, does he know? And they said, no. And I was like, cool. (laughs) What do we do? You know, like, what's the plan? So I was on this like high, high, and then a very low, low. So for me, my coping mechanism became experience the lows because you can never be so high and so like Mm -hmm. ecstatic about life because then you're just going to get slapped down. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's one really common, interesting fact between the two of Mm -hmm. us. I don't do it as much now, but I'll catch myself because it's like muscle memory because I've done it so long. I'll catch myself starting it and I'll try to reel it mm-hmm. back in and be like, you know what? You're safe. Mm-hmm. You're fine. And you don't need to like I like to use the analogy of this bridge and I've used it before. I like to say, you know, imagine whatever it is you're worrying about is like a bridge on the road. You don't you know, there's a bridge right mm-hmm. coming up. You don't know what the bridge looks like. You don't know if it's one lane, two lanes, under construction, a drawbridge. You have no idea if it's a, there's one wooden plank you have to hobble across. You just have no idea about this bridge. So you're going to spend all this time worrying about something and you may get there and it'd be a beautiful bridge and you're the only car on it. You just have no idea. So literally let's cross the bridge when we come to it. Otherwise, you know, you're out there squirreling yourself thinking about every worst case scenario that could possibly exist. So, yeah, I mean, I... I have worked really hard to not look look at worst case scenarios anymore because um, after my mom passed away at 29, I just realized you can't predict anything. So, you know, I just stopped looking into the future of what's going to happen. And um, I also realized that, um, and I kind of want to say this to people, like I think when people hear about inner child healing, Sometimes I think people think that they had to have had some very strong, traumatic experience to happen. I was very much one of those people in my 20s and 30s that was like, no, my childhood was fine. I mean, it wasn't, but um, I always thought that I needed, you had to have like some sort of physical abuse, sexual abuse, something very traumatic to happen. And once you really start doing it, you really realize like the emotional part of it that is hard Mm -hmm. um you know because it's hard to accept that you were emotionally and mentally abused because Mm -hmm. there's not a physical sign to it yeah um so I again talking with my younger friends they're like oh no no I'm fine but then they start talking about their childhood and I'm like girl you're not so fine (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so I just want that I just want to put that out there that you don't have to say like a terrible terrible traumatic thing happened it's I fully agree like I know our stories sound pretty traumatic I mean I had a death in the family very early and you were like mentally and emotionally abused that's very traumatic it is but trauma is very relative as as well and I think a lot of times you know one of the things that's really hard is when you're looking back especially in your when you're in a circumstance where it's like nobody's fault like my brother wasn't murdered it's like nobody it was nobody's fault Mm -hmm. that he died he just got sick and died Mm -hmm. and so for me looking back on that I'm like I try to rationalize before I like started really trying to heal it. I would try to rationalize like, well, you know, I always had clothes and food and mm-hmm. I had a house and my parents tried to give me what I wanted. And, you know, we did the best we could and we all made it out alive and blah, 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 blah. And it was really me not being in a state of acceptance mm-hmm. of what had happened. And it was me trying to like make this 
thing not seem so bad because everything else, you know, it was just was like trying to gaslight mm-hmm. myself, which is my favorite activity, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> convince myself that I didn't deserve to be so upset about something for, for you know, to not to be able to say, like, I had a good childhood, you know, and I think true, too, it's hard for us to make blanket statements like that because people want to be like, yeah, I had a great childhood. Like I was an innocent, wonderful child. And, you know, to be in a full state of acceptance to say like, yeah, some bad things happened uh, and I made it out alive and I'm okay and I'm healing from that is a big part of it. But I say all that to say trauma is very relative. So like, yes, you may have had food on your table, clothes on your back, a house that you lived in. But if your uh, cousin did something to you that was traumatic and locked you in a closet for two hours, I don't know why I'm saying that, but let's say your cousin locked you in a closet for two hours. Well, yeah, you might have some abandonment trauma mm-hmm. because you were locked in a closet yeah. for two hours, you know? So you just really, you know, don't discount your wounds because they may still mm-hmm. mean that they need a little healing, a little acceptance. I grew up in the beginning of the era of quote unquote daddy issues. Mm. Like that term came out in my late teens, early twenties. And Oh, I was bound and determined to not be a daddy issues girl. And, um, Mm, surprise. <laughs> Joke's on you. Joke's on me. That's what I like to call a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. <laughs> 20 years later. You were just a really early manifester. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, that was a complete deflection. Absolutely not. I am not that girl. Um, but yeah. Um, I am that girl. It, <laughs> and it just came out later happened. on in It's life. just so weird how yeah. that happens. Well, it is true. Like, I really think some of the things you're most resistant to becoming or being are things that are already within you. And I know we've talked about this, too, like the universe being a mirror to the things you need to, like, work on within yourself. And um, that can be a little, like, woo-woo for some people. But I really, truly believe that you're given the chance to heal things when it's time for you to heal them. So if you take a look at your life and you see a common theme occurring like it's time for you to really dive in deeper to that so if you're listening to this and you're like man I've heard about um inner child healing but you know maybe I need to really dive in Um, now's your chance um oh go ahead okay so just real quick um you know we talked about this a little bit in the beginning or our first podcast and I mean Annie and I've been talking about inner child healing for a long time and the other day um I was just sitting outside again um when it was nice and warm and um (laughs) I just feel like I I'm a little bit really bitter (laughs) no no pun intended um And I just realized that inner child healing is a lot like experiencing grief. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in the beginning, it's so hard and you don't want to do it. You don't want to accept that you have to do it. You don't want to accept the pain that goes along with it. Um, And then you go through and again, it's I'm a big supporter of the five stages of grief and they all happen at different times. But then you go through a depression stage where you're like, you know, you think about this is happening and how did I allow this to happen? Um, and then like where I'm at kind of right now, and you said this earlier, was kind of an acceptance mm-hmm. phase. Mm-hmm. Um, this happened and I can't fix it. I can't, I mean, I can fix it, but I can't change it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now how am I going to move forward yeah. doing this? And I know that there'll be Waves. I'm not saying that I'm going to go, you know, you don't go in specific order of the process of grief and everything. But 
um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. So anger is probably going to come out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I forgot what the other one is. Do you remember? What did, what did we say? It's depression, anger, acceptance. acceptance. Bargaining. Bargaining. I don't know if the... I was like... Um, well, we'll get back to you yeah. on that. I'm sure somebody yeah. who's listening knows and is like screaming it in the car. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It is it is grieving. You're grieving the childhood that you didn't have, mm-hmm. that you wanted so much. Mm-hmm. And you're grieving for the pain that you felt while you were going through what you were going through. And I think that's a really heavy thing. And I think something else to mention is like, kind of when you're looking at healing your inner child or working with your inner child too, and we touched on it a bit earlier, you have to be very careful not to slip back into your old narratives. The goal of this is to look at it from like an objective sort of standpoint and not the perspective of the wounded child, if that makes sense. Because, you know, we want to accept and be present with our past self in this moment, which can sound counterintuitive, especially if you're like really into a presence practice where like you are um, focusing solely on the present and trying not to focus on the past or the future. Um, But there are things that you have to kind of look backwards at to move forward in the sense of like healing and so forth, especially when it comes to like pain bodies and things like that. Um, But you have to be careful when you're looking back at your inner child not to add fuel to your fire of this was my story and this is why I'm wounded and this is what was wrong and this is how unfair it was and all of those things. And to really get to a place of acceptance, you kind of have to remove the personal part of it Mm -hmm. and say, you know, eight-year-old Jessica was treated unfairly Mm -hmm. and now 45-year-old Jessica knows what it's like to be treated fairly and Mm -hmm. she won't stand for somebody not doing that anymore. And that can be it. And then you're at your place of acceptance and you can move forward. But it doesn't mean that you won't get triggered by trying to set a boundary that you haven't set for 40 years, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's important to talk about that too because some people are like, well, just get over it. It happened 40 years ago. And I'm like, yeah, but but for 40 years, I've been carrying around this emotional baggage that I have not put down, and I need to go through my backpack a little bit and clear it out. Like, give me a second. Mm-hmm. So, I think for those that are listening that are wanting to start this journey or interested in this journey, um, Annie and I talked about writing a letter to your younger self. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly encourage you doing that. You've got to set some time apart from any distractions and you've got to be real and you have to be raw and it's going to hurt and you might want to throw up at some point. (laughs) I mean, it's, but you have to be real. I mean, it's, it's a lot, but save that letter and then do your work. And then six months later, write yourself another letter. Did your teachers ever do that to you in school where they were like, write your future self a letter? I had a teacher that did that in school and I can't remember if it was like high school or I think it was high school, but I can't remember what grade it was. And they were like, write yourself a letter in 10 years and I'll mail it. Oh, I think we did do something like that. I'm pretty sure mine Mine said I would be married to Dave Matthews. (laughs) Mine was like Washington. (laughs) Mine was so silly. It was like, hey, girly pop. Yeah. (laughs) It's been a decade. You still rocking out to Umbop? Yeah. Um, because I thought about doing that again in six months of writing myself a letter and seeing the changes that I've made just to, again, help me mm-hmm. be proud of myself for going through this journey. It's not an easy journey. And it mm-hmm. is, Annie was talking about it. 
You've got to be prepared. It is going into war. And it's very easy. I don't mean that like that. I know. But it's very, very hard not to go back into the negative narratives Mm -hmm. um, because that's what we've trained our mind to do. And so when I catch myself doing that and I stop, I say out loud, I'm proud of you, Jessica. I'm proud of you. And, you know, um, so yeah, so again, the six months later, I would like to go write myself another letter and see what you're saying differently. Yeah. Or even like if you pick a different age, Mm -hmm. how would that change things? Because I've also heard a lot about inner teenager work. Yeah. Which I'm not quite ready for that. I'm not ready for that one either. Um, But I agree. I think when you're ready to kind of go through your past, you have to come from a place of willingness to see all the dark stuff that you've been hiding from and to see it from a place of compassion instead of a place of fear or guilt or shame or anger you have to really sit in and say if this was an eight-year-old child I'm just saying eight Mm -hmm. because that's your age if this was a a real eight-year-old child sitting in front of me that wasn't me what would I say to that person in this scenario that they're going through Um, And then say that to the eight-year-old version of yourself. But I think you also have to come in willing to be ready for your old coping mechanisms to come out to play and to be able to sit there and say, I see that I am starting a story. I'm going to stop my story and I'm just going to breathe through it for a second. And then I'll dive in a little bit deeper and like really be present with all of those feelings and thoughts and really aware, just having the awareness of what your patterns are. And I think it becomes really illuminating. At least I feel maybe I'm out of order in my brain, but I feel like once we started looking at inner child healing, suddenly we're coming to each other being like, I noticed this is a pattern I have (laughs) and I'm very aware of it now Mm -hmm. and like things like that. And the more you're aware of something, um, the more likely you are to be able to kind of snap yourself out of that and move forward without it, especially negative self-talk, which we've talked about before. But yeah. One of the things that I have been challenged to do um, by someone was um, look at photos of yourself as a young child. And um, so I went through the process of finding old photos. I will tell you that I have personally gotten rid of or destroyed a lot of photos from my childhood because um, prior to doing all this, um, I did not like looking at them and I didn't want them around. Um, so I destroyed a lot of them. And so I went through and I found a bunch and I got to picture three and had to stop Mm. picture three. And I was, it was just too hard, but my initial thought was throw them away, throw them away. Why? Because I just, I look at that girl and I hear, all the negative things that were said to her mm. as a child. Um, and I hear the mocking. I hear the making fun of. I was an overweight child. I was a child of the 80s, so short hair was in. Um, had to get my ears pierced so that people knew I was a girl. Um, a lot of just self-insecure things. And those were the pictures that I was looking at. And then there were a couple of pictures of like when I was two and three and just so innocent. Mm -hmm. And that was the picture that made me stop. There was a picture of me, I think I was like three, and I just looked so innocent. Mm -hmm. And I just, I couldn't do it. But instead of throwing them away, I put them away and said, you're not ready for this, but you will be one day. Yeah. And they're there, and I see them every day. And 
every day. I'm like, is today today? Nope. Nope. But it will happen one day. Um, so I say that because there are going to be very discouraging moments where you're just going to want to give up. Mm-hmm. But you're, you have to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think... I personally think that videoing me going through those pictures would be probably the rawest thing. Do you want me to do it? I know Annie wants to do it so bad. (laughs) Um, No, but but that would be a really interesting thing to experience. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's so strange. Well, it's not strange. Like, you're not strange. It's strange to me because, (laughs) I mean, we're all a little strange. It's strange to me because I have the opposite reaction with pictures. Like, I'm almost hyper-vigilant about keeping photos because, and and I think it goes back to loss. Like, you know, when you lose someone in your life, it's like very slowly you forget their voice. Mm -hmm. And like, especially, you know, now if you lose someone, it still hurts a lot, don't get me wrong, but we live in this age of technology where you have access to all of this digital media of your loved one, pictures and voice notes and voicemails and videos and all sorts of stuff but like back when my brother died like VHS tapes were a mm-hmm. thing you know like people it, but you had to have money to have that you know like a camera and recordings and stuff so like from our early childhood we didn't have a lot of like video footage now my brother is a make-a-wish child so if you want to talk about crying together um in his make-a-wish they he asked for a video camera and so the videos that i have of my brother are from diagnosis to death oh i just got chills and my dad sent them to me um, because he digitized them and i did eventually watch one of them but i just like couldn't do it Mm -hmm. it's just too hard Mm -hmm. to hear all of that Ooh, hey look at me (laughs) annie's crying y'all annie's crying (laughs) I, but I am too. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I, so because of that, I'm like hyper vigilant mm-hmm. about taking pictures of my kids and videos and having a memory. And like, mm-hmm. I, those pictures are so important to me. I just said that to my friend the other day. Oh my gosh, get it together. I just said that to my friend the other day. I was like, I think if I lost anything in life, the thing that would hurt me the most is losing pictures mm-hmm. um, of people because I feel like, my memory is going to fail me and I won't remember them. Mm -hmm. And if I lose that memory, this is deep. Hold on. Okay. (laughs) If I lose my memory of them, then it's almost like I've lost that last piece of them forever. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting to hear the difference in the Mm -hmm. way we feel about photos from childhood because those photos I do have of me and my brother, like there was only a handful Mm -hmm. of, I mean, there was a good amount, but it was just like, that's it. There's no more creation of that. Yeah, so yeah. I wish I had that, like, I, but I, I don't know really if there's any photos that I could go through in my childhood that I could look at, not even just of me, but me and my family and be like, oh, that was a great time. Yeah, I can look at a photo of us when we went to Disney World, and I don't think of the happy magical kingdom. Yeah. I think of the bad, the bad thing that happened. Yeah, you know. So I can really. I wish I had that. I wish yeah. I could look back at photos. And be like, oh, that was fun, or that was nice. And I don't think that though. No. I look back and I'm like, man, like, yeah, he's gone. I miss him. Yeah. So um, I can't look it, at photos of. I mean, I, I can. I shouldn't say that, but again, like with um, mom, like we we have videos and stuff, and 
It's so hard. It's been 16 years. It's still hard. Yeah. You know. It's almost worse. Like, I know people talk, of course, well, I'm sure we'll have a whole episode on grief at some point, but just to touch base on it a little bit, everyone's like, oh, time will make it better. And I disagree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Especially, you know, I mean, I, if you're grandparent is 89 years old and they pass peacefully in their sleep like it's still very painful it's still a big loss and you still miss that person so very much but it's different when your brother dies when you're a kid because every life stage Mm -hmm. I think about Mm -hmm. what would it be like and that's dangerous Mm -hmm. too because it's obviously not going to be something that I get to see come to a reality but it's you know it's always in the back of your mind like Oh, man, if he was here, would he have kids? Would our kids mm-hmm. be friends? You know, that sort of stuff. So or he should be here. Yeah. That's the when you say grief doesn't go away. Life events happen. Yeah. And there is. It's not necessarily a like knee dropping moment, but every big life event, there's a quick he should be here. Yeah. Like a flash or in the back she of should be here. Yeah. Um. And unfortunately, having gone through grief in that, you have a tendency to say to yourself, can't think about that right now. Because mm-hmm. you got to be happy. These are usually, yeah. you know, weddings and birthdays and births yeah. and stuff. So you can't be the girl crying because <laughs> your brother's not here or yeah. your mom's not here. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is, it. grief does not go away. It stays forever and it hits you at different times. But we digress. Yes. <laughs> Let me, let's reel it in. But anyway, back to seeing pictures of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th- I just think it's really interesting. Are you open to another prompt? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. This will be the last one for this um, little part about inner child, inner child work. Um, I want to know, and this is something that is interesting to me because I don't know how I would answer it. So it's going to take me a minute to have my own answer, but I want to ask you, what did you learn about emotions as a child? Like how were you taught to handle emotions, how to comfort yourself, how to like process emotions? I want to know all about that. Okay. Well, I swear to God, she's like, Annie's reading my diary or doing something because all these prompts have been things that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I was not taught to talk about emotions, display emotions, feel emotions. Um, I feel like as a child, when I did express emotions, I was often told that's dumb. Um, or you're lying. Um, So there was not a lot of emotional talk in my family, in my childhood. Uh, We do not say I love you. That was never a thing. I remember always being jealous when I was over at my friend's house and their parents were like, okay, good night, Annie, you know, love you. And I'm like, huh? Why don't I get that? Mm. Um, We're not huggers. my mom was an emotional person. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. Because you're one of the biggest hugger, the biggest in denial huggers I know that I, I know. Yeah. You're always like, I'm not a hugger. I'm like, Jessica, if you could fuse with my body to hug me, <laughs> you would. People, I know. So that became, um, it's very weird because I do give off the vibe very much where I'm like, don't touch me, don't touch me, don't hug me. But Annie is 100% correct. If I 
am comfortable with you, I want to cuddle you. Like, mm-hmm. I, if Annie were to lay down on the couch right now, I would go and cuddle her. Um, all right, all right. This is a PG podcast. <laughs> not in that way. <laughs> um, but I am. But, yeah, no, we, we, we didn't talk about emotions. And um, my mom was an emotional person, but in a cry a lot sort of way. Um, she had a lot of stuff going on now knowing what I know and being older. Um, but we just didn't, we didn't do emotions. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as an adult, it is very, very, well, I mean, it's, it's non-existent. I don't tell people you made me sad or I'm sad or I'm mad. I just don't talk about emotions, Mm -hmm. my personal emotions. Now, if Annie comes to me and says, I'm sad, I'm like, tell me everything. Yeah. Tell me everything. Yeah. But as soon as the question is asked of me, I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Who's sad? Yeah. Not me. Not me. No, I'm good. Can't Um, spell sad. So I recently uh, talked to a friend of mine and told them that I was in therapy and I was asked, um, a question of like, why are you in therapy? And I started talking to them about it. And I said, just that I said, you know, I don't know how to verbalize emotions. And, um, you know, I don't say I love you. And, um, he was like, I don't understand that. And I said, I just, I don't do emotions. And he said, that surprises me so much because you're always so sociable and you're so easy to talk to. And, you know, you're so happy all the time. And I'm like, hmm. It's working. It's a defense mechanism. Tricked you. Yeah. yeah. Because he was so surprised at me talking about my high anxiety and lack of worthiness. And he was just like, are you serious? I was like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he's like, how do I not know this? I was like, because I don't talk about it. Right. Because <laughs> I was exactly. told as a child, we don't talk about this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's how I deal with emotions. It's interesting, too, because I feel the same way, but I wasn't, like, innately taught don't talk about things. I think I was self-taught, like, hyper-independence because my brother, before he passed, was special needs. So he had, like, a lot of, you know, attention that he needed, and I didn't because I wasn't special needs. And, you know, I was always – I was, like, firstborn girl, you know? Like, the first girls always Mm -hmm. are, like, the second mom – so to speak, but I was trying to mother myself (laughs) because, you know, my parents were so busy trying to help him. And it's not that they were neglecting me by any means, but it was just easy to be like, oh, you can do this on your own because you're capable. Mm -hmm. And some of that is parenting, like, you know, pushing your child to do things and making sure that they try, even if they're afraid or don't want to or whatever, that you help them through it. But I took on this role of like hyper independence Mm -hmm. because it was just easier than to stress people out by asking for help or um, having a feeling. And I really self-isolated a lot as a kid. Like I would ask for like a TV in my room and, you know, whatever, so that I could literally just be in my room and not have feelings. And this was like way before my brother died. Like I was like eight or nine years mm-hmm. old doing this. And um, I just learned to deal with my emotions like that. And then after my brother died, um, my parents asked me if I wanted to go to therapy. And I told them, no, I'm fine. And obviously, like I was 12, so I was not fine. <laughs> 
And uh, instead of going to therapy, I would save my money and walk up to Albertson's grocery store and buy peanut butter M&Ms and eat them Mm -hmm. in my bedroom late at night and hide them under my bed. And then that's how I started binge eating. And that's Mm -hmm. how I started controlling, quote unquote, my emotions was through, you know, literally stuffing them down my body through my esophagus via food. It's not funny, but I'm going to laugh about it because if I don't want to cry again. And... It's just interesting how now, as I'm moving forward and really healing those parts of myself, how I'm also starting to heal my binge eating disorder because I'm facing my emotions now instead of hiding them or um, filling myself full of food so I can fill the emptiness, you know, inside of me. And, you know, nobody really taught me that. It was just something that, like, happened one day, um... And it's just interesting how you can pick up all of that stuff. And, you know, I don't even know that my parents knew what was going on. And that's no no fault to them. You know, they had, I can't imagine losing my kid and then trying to, like, live my life and, like, <laughs> raise my other child and be present at all. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't feel like, I know that my mom, <laughs> when I was little, she would tell me that, um, I would tell her my feelings and she would repeat them back to me and I would get mad at her mm-hmm. for like, cause her way of validating was being like, what I hear you saying is, <laughs> and, um, I would be like, those are my feelings. Quit telling me my <laughs> feelings, you know? Um, so I know that like there was some emotional, like some emotional teaching there, but I think I just like everybody shut down after my brother died and it was just you know life was just not the same Mm -hmm. but I I do find it really interesting to see how those things that we used to do in childhood follow us for all of our lives Mm -hmm. until we're willing to you know look him in the eye and say you know what that's not a healthy thing that I'm doing and I really should you know work on fixing the part of me that feels the need to continue doing that because it's not like you said Mm -hmm. it's just not healthy Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not how we continue to grow and be better so and that's um, my narrative this morning consisted of me telling my and my story that I was telling this fictional person. Um, I used to do that a lot where I would just like when I think it comes sorry to interrupt you. I think it comes from not feeling validated mm-hmm. by people and not really having like a sounding board. So like I would talk to myself as I was growing up and be like, and I would like literally have the conversation to where if you were, in the medical field, you would be like, is she schizophrenic? Yeah. You know, because I'm like answering yeah. as if the person is there yeah. hearing and understanding me. Well, you just said something that really hit me. Telling my story in my head, which is what I would do a lot of times, especially when I was hurt or having really bad anxiety. It was me trying to validate to myself my feelings. But in reality, there was no validation going on. It was more of just self-harm. Of right. reminding you how bad it hurt when all of this yeah. was going on. But in my narrative today, I did picture myself as 8-year-old Jess again, um, sneaking food into my bedroom mm-hmm. because I was often mocked and made fun of for what I was eating. Again, I was a very overweight person, overweight child. Um but that was my coping mechanism, food, mm-hmm. and it still is. Yeah, because um, food can't. I'm gonna be honest. Right talk now, that. talking about this podcast, I'm like, what does Annie have in her pantry? She's got a five year old son, so I know there's treats in there somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so that's where my emotions came in. That's where I found happiness. That's where I found love. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I 
I knew about emotions and it only came in that way. Um, something else that I'm working on and has brought to my attention of um, emotions was like the self-worth part of it mm-hmm. where I did for people. Mm. And that to me gave me satisfaction mm-hmm. and worthiness and happiness. Mm-hmm. So I was a kid who would come to school with $10 and would go up to my best friend and be like, I have $10. What do you want me to buy you? Okay. Hold this thought because that's actually what I want to talk about in our next okay. episode. Okay. So I do want to say thank you so much for joining us. Yes. It's going to feel you. like an abrupt ending, but don't worry. We'll have another episode right after this one so you guys can listen. And as always, make sure you rate us um, and leave us a comment and let us know how you're relating to the podcast because it's always good to hear from you guys as well. And if there's anything you want us to talk about that you're dealing with that we can relate to. Yes, I really would love that to have submissions from people, whether you have a prompt or just something you're going through that you Mm -hmm. want to hear a different perspective on. We would love to be a part of that as well. You all have a good day. I'm going to the pantry. Oh, yes. (laughs) There's chocolate in there. Okay. Okay, y'all. Bye. Bye.